favorably upon true fans don't tend to look favorably upon fair weather fans. What are fair weather fans? Well, kind of the name says it all. They only show up when the weather is good. They only root for the team when they're winning. Most of us were fair weather fans in 2016 when the Cubs won the World Series. There's a few real fans out there, but most of us were rooting for them during that time. A fair weather fan, when the going gets rough, cannot be seen anymore. So if you're rooting for the Bears today, we know that you're not a fair weather fan because they're pretty awful. And so uh, we know you're not a fair weather fan. But when it comes to following Jesus, there are true followers and then there are fair weather fans. And in today's passage, the crowd that welcomed Jesus when they shouted Hosanna as he came into Jerusalem are gonna be shown today to be fair weather fans. But Jesus is not interested in fair weather fans. He has come to rescue true followers. And today, God, through his word, he's going to give us compelling reasons to follow Jesus or to keep following Jesus. And he'll also explain to us uh, why there are some who refuse to come to him, even if they see all the evidence that Jesus is Lord. So for some context, remember that Jesus, as I just mentioned, had entered into Jerusalem during Passover time. This was a time when Jerusalem was swelling with people. The population doubled, tripled, maybe even like 10 times the population, according to some scholars. This was the height of Jesus's ministry in terms of popularity. And right at the height of his popularity, he says, now is the time for me to be glorified. And so the people are excited. But he drops the hammer and he says, my glory is going to come through my death. And that's what we talked about last week. And as we dive into our passage today, this core truth will be revealed. And it's this, that Jesus is the light that came to pierce the darkness of this world through his death. Jesus is the light that came to pierce the darkness of this world through his death. And as we go through the text, it will be presented with three responses to this core truth, three ways that we can respond to it. First is, now is the time to turn to the light. Now is the time to turn to the light. We see that in verses 27 through 30. Second response is, remember that God's plan advances even through unbelief. God's plan advances even through unbelief. That's in verses 37 243. And then the third response is to build your foundation on Jesus. That's in verses 44 to 50. So let's look at that first response now, that now is the time to turn to the light. You've probably heard the phrase, timing is everything. You know this to be true when timing doesn't quite work out. You know this when you've received a uh, thank you for your birthday or a happy birthday, maybe three to four to days later or maybe a week or two later, you know that timing matters. You know that when someone misses the punchline of a joke, you know timing really matters when they uh, are telling the joke and they forget completely what they're talking about. Timing is everything. Well, when it comes to Jesus, his timing is always perfect, even though we can't always see it at the time. And the timing is perfect now. His hour has come to be glorified. 
And as this hour has come, Jesus gives three indicators that this timing of him going to the cross is right, that it is necessary for him to go to the cross. There's three indicators here. The first indicator is that the cross was the reason he came to this earth. Look at verse 27. I'll read it out for us. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus knew his time had come. He knew it was time to go to the cross And he knew that this was why the Father sent him into the world. It was the key moment of his life. But in this moment, we witness his humility once again. His soul, or not his humility, well, his humility and his humanity is what I meant to say once again. So we see that his soul is troubled. He's not afraid. He's he's the most courageous person who ever lived, but he feels deeply this weight of the impending wrath of God that he is about to bear. He knows what is coming, but look what he does in this moment. He is not most concerned about himself. He is most concerned about doing the Father's will. He doesn't give in to the temptation, the the weight of the sorrow that he feels. He doesn't seek to get out of it. He says, what should I say? Save me from this hour? No, I came for this hour. And so he, the cross was the reason he came to this earth. It brings us to the second indicator of Jesus going to the cross that was necessary, and that is because the cross brings, us, brings the most glory to God. So after talking about uh, how he feels, the great sorrow he feels, Jesus recalibrates, and he prays aloud in his time of distress. Listen to what he says in verse 38. He says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. I want us to notice, once again, the character of Jesus. At the time of his deepest distress, what does he do? He prays. He prays to his father. He is most concerned not about himself, but about his father's glory. And to the surprise of the crowd, I'm sure God answers audibly this prayer. Don't we wish that God always answered audibly the prayers that we prayed? They they hear a voice from heaven, and the father says that he has glorified his own name, likely through Jesus' life up to this point. The father has glorified his name and that he will glorify it in the future through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. Because the cross is where the Father receives the most glory. You sometimes hear people say, well, I would believe in Jesus, or I would believe in God if I heard a voice from heaven, if I had a sign from heaven. Well, this is a case study to that type of theory. Because Jesus says that, they did hear a voice from heaven. The the voice came down for the sake of the crowd, presumably so that they would believe in Jesus. But later in the passage, we're gonna find out this crowd did not believe. So even a voice from heaven coming down won't make one believe. Well, the crowd was full of people like us. They were people that needed their sins to be paid for. They didn't just need to hear the voice of God from heaven. They needed their sins to be paid for. They needed to be counted not guilty. 
And that's what happened on the cross. And that is why the cross brings great glory to God. Well, a third indicator from Jesus that the cross was necessary comes in verse 31. And that indicator is that the cross is where the world is judged and people are saved. The, he says this in verse 31, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So first, the cross is the place of judgment. Remember, in the Gospel of John, the, the world represents the world system that is against God, that is hostile towards Jesus. This is um, the entire world system is this way. And the ruler of that world, the ruler of the world that we live in is Satan. And the cross brought judgment and defeat to both. You see, the world thought they were gaining an upper hand on Jesus at the cross. I love how D.A. Carson puts it, though. It, was, uh, it wasn't quite what was happening. He says, the world thought it was passing judgment on Jesus. In reality, the cross was passing judgment on them. The world's sin at the cross was shown to be utterly sinful. They crucified the Son of God. They crucified the one who came to save them. At the cross, Satan was also judged, that great accuser of the brethren, the one that uh, Revelation 12 calls the deceiver of the entire world. Have you thought about that for a moment? Satan is the deceiver of the world. This world system, all these things, you kind of wonder, like, why is the world going like this? Why does this seem so, like, twisted and corrupt? Well, Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. But he was at the cross. He had his great deception exposed and defeated. At the cross, Jesus took God's wrath against sins upon himself so that the great accuser could no longer accuse those who God had rescued through the cross. His accusations were no longer valid. Well, this isn't the first time that Jesus says that he's going to be lifted up. If you remember back in chapter 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus, he said he was going to be lifted up, just like Moses lifted up the snake in the desert. He says, so the Son of Man would be lifted up. And in chapter 8, he said he was going to be lifted up. And John clarifies that he means that this is how Jesus predicted he was going to die, by being lifted up on a cross. It's a clever word choice by John. Uh, I'm glad the Holy Spirit inspired him to do this because the Greek word here translated as lifted up is elsewhere in the New Testament translated as exalted. And so how appropriate that is. As Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he was exalted in a way that he could, that he wasn't before being lifted up. He was the way that God exalted Jesus was through his death. Well, the cross is the place of judgment, but the cross is also the place of salvation. And so as Jesus was lifted up, paying for the sins of those he would redeem, he says in verse 32 that he would draw all people to himself. 
By this, he doesn't mean that all people are going to be saved. This is not universalism. What he is saying is that he is going to draw all kinds of people to himself, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, people from every language, nation, tribe, and tongue. You know, the strongest magnet in the world, it's called a neodymium magnet. And through his death on the cross, Jesus shows that he is so much stronger than the strongest neodymium magnet. He is one, when he is lifted up, he is drawing all people to himself. Those he has called to himself, those he wants to redeem, he calls to himself from all over the world throughout all time. Well, after we hear from Jesus about these indicators that the, why the cross is necessary, like the crowd in the story, we need to make a decision about Jesus. It's not enough just to know that the cross was necessary. And if we look at the crowd, we see how they put off this decision about Jesus. Like so many today, they mask their unbelief in religious jargon, in religious curiosity. So look at verse 34. So the crowd answered him, we have heard that from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? Now the crowd had a valid argument from scripture. There were scriptures like Ezekiel 37 and Psalm 89 and other places that did seem to indicate that the Christ or the Messiah would remain forever. So they had a legitimate question. They also thought, well, the son of man from Daniel 7, this is a glorified figure. How can the son of man be one who has to die? Who is this son of man? We know who the, the Daniel son of man is. They're thinking, who is this son of man? So they had some valid arguments, but Jesus knows their hearts. He knows that this is not the main reason why they are not believing. So he doesn't even answer their objection. Look what he says in verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So what is Jesus doing here? He's giving the crowd yet another chance to believe in him before he dies, before he, the light of the world, is taken away. The time is drawing short before he's going to die. He's not going to be around him much longer. And I want us here in, in these verses to listen to the urgency in Jesus' voice. The principle that we want to take away from these verses is, that, is this, that when Jesus is speaking to you, don't delay in acting. Don't delay in acting when you have Jesus speaking to you, whether that's through his word, the preached word, or the written word, or through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if you already know and love Jesus. When Jesus is speaking to you, do not delay. Now is the time to turn to Jesus. Don't wait to confess your sins and come to him. Don't wait until you have all the answers to answer the doubts in your mind about Jesus. Don't delay in acting. You may not be convicted in the same way tomorrow. Now is the time to turn 
to the light. Well, many of us have done that uh, once and for all. We have turned to the light. We have trusted in Jesus. But sometimes it's easy to get discouraged when people around us, when the world at large seems to reject him and not believe. And that brings us to our second response in this passage, which is this, to remember that God's plan advances even through the darkness of unbelief. God's plan advances, it is advancing through the darkness of unbelief. You know, the dangerous thing about spiritual darkness is that you don't know when you're in it. When you're in spiritual darkness, you don't know you're in the dark. Jesus says in verse 35 that those who walk in the darkness don't know where they are going, even though they think they're seeing clearly. And you see the evidence of that all around in our world today. But the most extreme example of spiritual darkness is this. When people see Jesus, when they hear about what he's done, when they have all the evidence in front of them, and then yet they still reject him. Tragically, the large crowd shows that they are stuck in this type of darkness in verse 37. It says this, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. These were people, remember, that had seen Jesus do countless signs, John says. He didn't even write down all the signs that he did. He had seen, they had seen him raise uh, the dead to heal the sick. He had performed countless other miracles, and all those miracles were designed to point them to this one reality, that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He was the Lord of all. But the crowd missed it. They missed it altogether. They did not understand. They did not believe. And it does make you wonder. It's, it's like, how could this be? How could they not believe? How had God's plan failed because his people had rejected him? What is going on, God? Well, the text says that their unbelief was not a surprise at all to God. It was not outside of God's sovereign control. Instead, it was actually part of his plan. Their unbelief was part of his plan, which had been foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Listen to the end of verse 37. And I'm just gonna warn you, this section is gonna be challenging. It's gonna be a challenging word for us to understand. It's the end of verse 7, uh, 37 and following. It, it gives us the first reason for their unbelief. It says, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, this question from Isaiah in Isaiah 53, when he's talking about the suffering servant, the implied answer to these questions in Isaiah 53 is none or not many. Not many have believed this message from Isaiah about the suffering servant. Not many had seen the revealed arm of the Lord, his power that was going to be displayed in this suffering servant. And why was it not received? It was not received, we're told in Isaiah, because this people, in chapter 1, were told that they were a disobedient people. They were a wicked and obstinate people. They were offspring of evildoers, people laden with iniquity, God says. And so their pride and their, their wickedness prevented them from seeing God's arm, his power being revealed through weakness. 
They have not believed the clear message from Isaiah. And what John is saying is that Isaiah's prophecy is being fulfilled in this rejection of Jesus. They have heard a clear message from Jesus. They have seen all of the signs. And then who has believed, Lord? Who has seen the arm of the Lord revealed? The implied answer is none or not many. The rejection of Jesus was shown through the unbelief of the crowd. Remember, this is the same crowd that had just ushered Jesus into Jerusalem saying, Hosanna. They wanted his power, but they did not want to submit to him as their king. And even after hearing his message, even after seeing his miracles, their sins, their wickedness prevented them from seeing Jesus. But that was not the only reason for their unbelief. In verse 39, we read these really quite chilling words about the crowd. It says, therefore, they could not believe. You're wondering, well, how could this be? Not being able to believe? John gives us the reason why they could not believe. And it's because God had hardened their heart. And he uses another quote from Isaiah. Now in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, and you remember in the context in Isaiah, God is giving a commission to Isaiah. After Isaiah has seen this glorious vision of the Lord, he's saying, uh, he's giving a commission to Isaiah and saying, go preach to them. Go give them this message. They're not going to receive it. They're not going to receive it. I mean, who would would love that message? (laughs) Lord, I'm going to go tell those people something. They're going to reject all of it. But that's what's happening in Isaiah chapter 6. And and so John quotes that. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see it with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. So it is true that God's people in Isaiah's time, along with the Jews in Jesus' time, they didn't believe God's message because of their sins. The choices they had made to reject God, that was true. That's what we see in Isaiah 53. But here from Isaiah 6, we learn that another main reason for their unbelief was because God had blinded their eyes and he had hardened their hearts. And now we just have to pause and take that all in. We need to think of certain scriptures in our minds. Scriptures like Ezekiel 33, 11, where God says, as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not up there in heaven just finding pleasure and hardening people's hearts. That, that is not what is happening here. He finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He, he says, turn, turn back that you might live. So what is God, what is God doing here in John's gospel? Well, John is telling us that when people did not believe in Jesus, they were responsible for their choice. And at the same time, he tells us that God hardened his people's hearts, in this case, through a clear message and clear signs of Jesus. That clear message showed that their hearts were hardened and it further hardened them in, that, uh, in their beliefs. So that clear message was a hardening agent, if you will. And so they could not believe. Both are true. Human responsibility and God's sovereignty. And how both of these realities work together is what we would call a mystery. 
Not a mystery that we need to figure out like Scooby-Doo, you know, a Scooby-Doo mystery, you kids who are still in, the, in here. It's more like a mystery where God reveals two truths that seem to be contradictory to one another, seem to not work together, but they are both true. We have to hold those things in tension, that we are responsible for the choices we make when we disbelieve. We are responsible for our sins, and we will be punished accordingly. But then God is sovereign over all of salvation. We've learned throughout John's gospel that no one comes to Jesus except if the Father draws him. We've learned that in order to follow Jesus, we must be born again by the Spirit. Something we cannot do, the Spirit does that within us. It's God's work in us, and it's our choice to believe. Both things are true. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. And in God, God in his word, in his wisdom, doesn't explain exactly how these two seemingly competing truths fit together. And so when we come to such places in scripture, we need to embrace it and not press further than what God has revealed in his word. And so what we learn is that each person is accountable for their choices in life and that God is sovereign over salvation. Both realities are true. Our responsibility for, is our choice to follow Jesus. We're not, our job is not to figure out the mind of God, the, the counsels of God. Our job is to believe. So that's a major topic in belief and unbelief. Human responsibility, God's sovereignty. Well, in case that wasn't big enough, we'll just move on to another major revelation from John here. He just keeps dropping these truth bombs in our laps. Listen to verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Remember, the he and him is referring to Jesus. So, the reason that Isaiah said these things about the suffering servant, about the hardening of their hearts, about not believing is because he saw Jesus's glory and he wrote about him, he spoke about him. When did he see Jesus's glory? Isaiah saw the glory of Christ probably in Isaiah 6 in that, because this is in the context of Isaiah 6 when, when, which is being quoted. So when, remember, when he sees this vision of the heavenly throne room where the cherubim are saying, holy, 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 when the glory of the Lord is filling the temple, Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. We don't know exactly what that was like, but somehow, before Christ came to earth in his pre-incarnate state, Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. And then he spoke about Christ. So in Isaiah 53, Isaiah is speaking about the suffering servant who is Jesus. He spoke of Jesus. He saw the glory of Jesus and he spoke of the glory of Jesus. If, you, if it's not kind of on the tip of your tongue, if you remember in Isaiah 53, it's all about the suffering servant. And I just want to listen to, I want you to listen to a portion of that chapter in verse four and five. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed 
for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Of course, we know that now to be Jesus, but Isaiah saw Jesus, and he spoke of him. This is yet another evidence of how Jesus is the focal point of the entire Bible. The whole Old Testament is pointing to him. The whole New Testament is talking about him. There is no disconnect. And while the majority of the Jews may have chosen to reject Jesus, they they may have been hardened in some form or fashion and not believed. It wasn't everyone. It wasn't every individual. It may have been the Jews at large, but it was not every single Jew. Some of them believed. There was a remnant of those in power who believed. Look at verse 42. It describes them. Nevertheless, many of even the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So outwardly, it looked that like not many truly believed in Jesus. But John says that many of the authorities believed in him. Now, it's hard to know what kind of belief this is. Is this true, genuine belief of Jesus? There's some seed of faith here. We don't know exactly uh, how to describe this kind of faith because they were unwilling to admit their allegiance to Jesus. But in any case, there were some signs of faith among the leaders. But it's tragic. They were not willing, it says, to admit their belief publicly because there was a major cost in doing so. They would have lost their lives, the comfort of their lives as they knew it. They probably would have been kicked out of their leadership council. They would have been kicked out of the synagogue. They would have had no friends if they identified with Jesus because they would have been ostracized from their community. And so they wouldn't identify with Jesus. These are people probably like Nicodemus, probably like Joseph of Arimathea. They were secret believers, but for the fear of what would happen if they confessed it. They wouldn't do it publicly. John says it's because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And before we judge these Jewish leaders who believed in secret, we need to just take a moment and consider if we have ever failed to identify publicly with Jesus because of what it might cost us. I wonder if you've ever talked to an unbelieving friend and changed your vocabulary around them because you didn't want it to be awkward. You didn't want them to think differently of you. I wonder if you're in a group of friends where you have neglected even now to reveal that you are a follower of Jesus because you don't want to lose those friendships. I wonder if you're in a work environment where you are afraid to identify with Jesus because you think it's going to affect your career advancement. Anytime we are following Jesus on this earth, there's a temptation for self-preservation. And at the root of that kind of self-preservation is a misplaced love. A love for the glory of the world rather than a love for the glory of God. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus has come to rescue us. He's come to rescue us from our unbelief. If you are an unbeliever here today, don't hear this word as if you are hardened forever. The gospel has come that you might believe 
in Jesus. He's come to rescue us from our unbelief. He has also come to rescue us from our fear of man, from our desire for man's glory. And so if you haven't yet believed in him, if your heart has not yet uh, uh, come towards him in faith, if you've not admitted your sins before him, come to him today. His arms are open wide. But if you're a follower of Jesus and you are ashamed of him, I know I've been ashamed in different contexts and different spaces. You're probably thinking of times, even this last week, that you were ashamed. Confess that to him and ask him to reorder your loves that you might love the glory of God more than the glory of those around you. Well, after we get this sobering commentary about unbelief and its causes, now we come to the final section of our passage And once again, Jesus sends out a final call to believe in him. And I hope we see the heart of Jesus. He has called us to believe in the first section. He's called us to believe in the last section. In the middle, he's talked about unbelief. He wants us to be saved. And so this last section, he sets forth this call to believe in him, and he sets forth the consequences of not doing so. And it leads to our third response in the passage, which is this. Build your foundation on Jesus. Build your foundation on Jesus. So Jesus has hidden himself from the people, and sometimes later he comes and preaches to them one final time. We need to take note of this because this is the last time where Jesus speaks publicly to the people. The whole rest of John's gospel, he's going to be in small groups. He's going to be with leaders. He's not going to talk to the crowds. This is the last time. So listen to verse 44. Jesus cried out and he said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. So Jesus, what is he doing? He's highlighting once again that he and the Father are one. So much so that to believe in Jesus is to believe in the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. Now they are two different persons in the one God. They're two members of the Trinity. They're not the same But to see Jesus is to see the Father. To believe in Jesus is to believe in the Father. He's pointing out he didn't operate alone. He didn't come for his own glory. He was accomplishing the Father's will. And that, as just an aside, is why religions who claim to follow God without embracing Jesus, you know which religions they are, I don't need to uh, mention them, they're all mistaken. They're all mistaken because the only way to know and follow God is by knowing and following Jesus. There's no other way. He has revealed himself through his son, Jesus, in these last days. Well, listen to how Jesus breaks down on how we can get out of darkness. He gives us a quick summary of the gospel in one verse, verse 46. He says this, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Gospel in one verse, verse 46. You can come back to this during the week. Jesus is saying three things. First, that he's the light of the world. He's not a light, he's the light, as in the only light. Second, we're all born in darkness. That's what's implied when he says we might not remain in darkness. He's saying we all were born in darkness, but he's come that we might not remain there. And third, he's saying believing in him is the way to get out of the darkness. There are other ways to receive the light. You can't get the light through education. 
can't get it through serving people. You can't get it through coming to church by being a good person. Only through believing in the light, in Jesus, can you get out of darkness. It's the gospel in one verse. But these aren't facts to memorize, but it's a, it's a person to embrace. And Jesus, as a person, he demands a response. The question we need to ask is, have I put my faith in him? I know there are some here this morning who haven't put their faith in Jesus. Let, let today be the day you put your faith in him. It's the only way to get out of darkness. But if you have, the question to ask is, are there areas of darkness that you have not exposed to Jesus? I mean, he sees them, but are there areas of darkness that you're not willing to give, give up? He wants us to walk worthy of our calling as children of light. Well, after Jesus gives us the gospel in, in verse 46, now he shows us the realities of not believing in verses 47 and 48. He's showing us what it means to not believe, of what unbelief looks like. He says this, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Well, here unbelief is described in two different ways by Jesus. First, he describes unbelief as hearing his word and not keeping it. This would be like someone who comes to church regularly, listens to the message of Jesus, maybe even reads the Bible and hears that there is one way, one truth, one life, and it's the person of Jesus, but you still don't believe it in your heart of hearts. You hear the message, but you don't believe. You don't trust him. You don't keep his word. James, in his letter, says that such a person is deceived, being a hearer of the word and not a doer of it. It's the first type of unbelief. Then Jesus describes unbelief in a second way in verse 48. He says that is someone who flat out rejects him and does not receive his words or his message. We need to remember that unbelief is about not a set of arguments. When we, unbelie when we don't believe, when, when we're filled with unbelief, we are rejecting a person. We are rejecting Jesus Christ. And so if you are in either category here of unbelief, Jesus says there will be a day of reckoning. When he first came to earth, Jesus says he didn't come to judge, he came to save the world. But on the final day, we learned early in John's gospel, he will be the judge on that final day. And on and judgment day, Jesus' words and his message will condemn the person who, un, who does not believe, who is filled with unbelief. His word will be that testimony against the person. He will shown, be shown to be right, and the unbelieving person will be shown to be guilty. And this guilty verdict will lead to eternal punishment. It's a sobering truth. Well, lest we seek that, think that Jesus is just operating alone here again, he gives us his credentials one more time. He shows us why he has the authority to say these things in verse 49. He says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, 
I say as the Father has told me. Friends, Jesus' message is the message from all eternity that God had designed this plan to save the human race through Jesus Christ. There is one message throughout all eternity, and this is, Jesus has the words of eternal life. The Father has given a commandment that is eternal life. The, the commandment is that you might know Jesus. Knowing Jesus, he'll say in verse 17, is eternal life. So Jesus is saying that this message is from the Father. And what we do with these words will we determine our eternal future. So as we close this section, as we're closing the message, I want us to ask, I want you to ask, what are you building your life upon? Upon what foundation are you building? What is your uh, big word worldview that you are operating according to? Are you operating according to Jesus's worldview that our whole lives must be built upon him? Are you operating according to the world's worldview, which is passing away and which will be judged? As we close, I want us to think about Jesus's glory. I want us to think about the cross, which was the place where he was most glorified and God was glorified and he was exalted. And as he was lifted up on the cross, bearing the sins of those he came to save, what appeared to be his demise became his greatest victory. And now Jesus is high and lifted up. He has ascended to where he was before he came to earth and he will be worshiped forever and ever. Will we embrace the glory of the cross? Will we follow him today? The choice is ours. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are humbled and sobered by this message from your word. Lord, we know that you came to this earth for sinners like us. You came to rescue us out of darkness and to bring us into your marvelous light. And yet, Lord, so many do not believe. And if we're honest, sometimes our own hearts, we have pockets that really don't believe it's true. Lord, we ask that you might transform us. You might open our eyes. You might cause us to confess those ways where we are ashamed of you, where we are not following you, and we might rest in what you have done for us and be transformed and be your ambassadors here on this earth. Lord, for those who are here this morning who don't yet know you, I pray they would hear the warnings of Jesus through his word, that they would turn that you take no delight in the death of the wicked, that they might turn, humble themselves, and put their full trust in Jesus. We pray that would happen according to your name and for your glory's sake. Amen.